Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000015 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm your host this evening, and it's good to be back. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners I'm broadcasting from this evening, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Also, thank you to Vaughan for the double vounce. Another excellent episode. He'll be back next Tuesday in the uh, cauldron that is Radiothon. We'll uh, be going through that experience together. Thank you so much to Paul Gorry for sitting in for me last week, for last week's show. You can catch Paul on Still Here with Neil Morris, 1pm Sundays. They play the latest and deadliest music from First Nations people within Australia and sometimes beyond. It's an awesome show, so um, check it out. Speaking of awesome shows, we have one for you tonight. In a few minutes, I'll play a pre-recorded conversation I had with the one and only Melissa Lukashenko. As many of you know, she won the 2019 Miles Franklin Award for her fantastic novel, Too Much Lip. We talk about that and so much more, the craft of writing, class politics, the earlier statement. Later in the hour, I'll be joined by the Deans of Soul in studio. I actually remember sharing a couple of bills with them back in the day when I used to do a bit of gigging myself. I stopped that, but um, they've gone from strength to strength, and I really admire when artists just continue to do what they love despite all the obstacles. So all strength to them. And we're also gearing up for a Radiothon. So later in the show, I will announce who my special co-host will be for next week. I've got to say, I just love generating all the unnecessary drama and intrigue I can. Anyway, the best way to connect with me is via Twitter. My handle is at MrDTJames. So pour yourself some bank and stick around. This is the mission on Triple R. It's to uh, tonight's guest... A couple and a bit weeks ago, she won the Miles Franklin Literary Award, the most prestigious award in the land for a novel, Too Much Lip. From some of our perspectives, it was only a matter of time before the Miles Franklin came her way. Too Much Lip is Bundjalung Woman's Melissa Lukashenko's seventh novel, by my count. This book alone has been shortlisted for the Stella Prize, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, the New South Wales Premier Literary Awards and the Australian Book Industry Awards. The list of awards that she has either been shortlisted for or has won is uh, longer than your arm. She's also a celebrated essayist. In 2013, she won the feature writing Long Walkley Award for her essay in the Griffith Review, Sinking Below Sight, Down and Out in Brisbane and Logan. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, Melissa Lukashenko is no longer down and out, and she's on the line with us now. Melissa, welcome back to Triple R. Daniel. <laughs> Good. <laughs> when did you discover you were a writer? Uh, well, the, I wrote my first poem when I was in primary school. The, my first poem that wasn't for school work, I mean. Um, I was riding a horse through the bush, and uh, something about the rhythm of the horses who on the dirt track must have stirred something in me because I started making up this poem. I don't remember much about it, but it had something to do with the weather. Um, 
and years from the, I guess it was all downhill from there, really. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been a slippery slope downward since then. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting that you mentioned rhythm. Um, I think people underestimate how important rhythm is to is to writing. Yeah, well, you've got to... Um, I guess you've got to understand something about the world to write well, and you've certainly got to understand a fair bit about yourself, and uh, you've got to understand the rhythm of your own emotions and your how to how to let the art flow out from that, I guess. Yeah, and, and like the rhythm of emotion in your work if you can't uh you can't take your reader on a monotone journey there's got to be highs and lows mm. uh, a lot of the craft of writing is about how to make that happen on the page yeah the the, the dynamics of the story some um, really important um do you have a sense of how far you've come as a person and a writer since you wrote that first poem <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was getting on for 50 years ago. <laughs> um, well, you grow with each book, hopefully, uh, and the irony of that is you get to the end of a book uh, that you had all high hopes for, and at the end of the book you realised what you what you didn't do and how you could have done things better. But that's just the nature of life. Eh? Life has to be lived forwards and understood backwards, and mm. writing is uh, pretty much the same thing. So long as I'm, you know, trying to stick to the basic Aboriginal principles of um, looking and listening and being respectful to country and to everything on country, uh, that's probably the best the best measure of growth that a person can have, really. We were um, both at the um, First Nations Australian Writers Network meeting last year in Canberra. And of all the advice, um, tips and tricks that were bandied about... Um, the seemingly simple piece of advice that resonated for me the most came from you when uh-huh. you simply said, pay attention. <laughs> what, what does paying attention mean for you? Oh, gee. It's kind of... Pay attention, it's really a question of ego. And uh, to be a writer, you have to have a certain amount of ego, otherwise you'd never spend years of your life sitting in a room, you know, crafting something in order that other people would pay attention to it. Mm. But if you if you let your ego um, get in the way of your work and become what it's all about rather than a tool to achieve the work, uh, that can be a real problem because you can't pay attention to the world if you're constantly thinking about me, me, me. So, uh, again, you know, that, that's one of the reasons I had to be in the 50s to write the book that I just wrote. Uh, you have to... Yeah, a young person will write one sort of book generally and a, an older person will write something more um, more reflective usually and less, less fiery, less focused on what, what that person themselves is going through and then, you know, reflects the society around them a little bit more um, complex, in more complex ways. So how, how long do you think it took you to find out, to find your voice? Um, it takes different people different amounts of time to say, okay, uh, this is my voice now. I am this type of writer. When did that occur to you? Uh, pretty early on in the piece, because uh, my voice hasn't changed very much from my first novel, which came out in 1997, Yep. Uh, Steam Pigs, and that was, about, that was the kind of story I was just talking about. You know, the young person focused on who they are in the world, 
how, how to negotiate the world on a personal level and, you know, the different personal traumas. Um, and that was the voice of a young Murray woman living in Eagleby in Logan City and, uh, you know, similar themes to what goes through all my work, which is um, family violence, identity, how to be Aboriginal in um, East Coast Australia. Um, and about the, the, the essential voice hasn't changed much. Uh, it's probably gotten a bit more rounded out as I've learned more, um, especially culturally. Mm-hmm. But that uh, kind of... I try and write uh, in a way that reflects um, the community around me and the kind of cheekiness and the, the humour, the blackfella humour that I see all day, every day. You know, not... not uh, bowing down to anyone, being yeah. thoughtful about the world, but not bowing and scraping to anyone in it, I guess. Yeah, I think um, in, in my experience, one of the main ways Aboriginal families and communities deal with adversity is through humour. And it's a, it's a particular type of humour. It's, it's, it's hard to capture on the page, but you've definitely done that with um, uh, too much lip. Um, how challenging was that aspect of the writing process with this book? Uh, it was challenging, but it was fun at the same time. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a right funny material. Is um, it's pretty it's pretty tricky. That was the challenge set myself was to write a funny book that took our trauma seriously and and said something real about um, intergenerational trauma and what we can do about it. Uh, yeah. So it, it but yeah, there's so much. Um, there's so much funny stuff that happens around us all the time. You know, my family and friends are used to me saying, oh, I'm going to pinch that, you know, or can I pinch that? I never take stuff without asking. Yeah. I'd be looking out my phone and not taking notes in the middle of a conversation. So uh, it's a bit of a group effort in that respect, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. Do, you, do you agree? It's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's not a, well, it's, it's a very unique sense of humour. It's something that's really hard to explain to, to people? Um, I think it's culturally specific. Yeah. But all oppressed communities all around the world, they uh, have similar types of humour, you know, Jewish humour and, um, yeah. I don't know, black American humour. Um, it's hard to know without actually knowing those subcultures yeah. uh, in depth. But I think, uh, you know, from all the work I've done with Sisters Inside and knocking around with people in the prison underclass for years and years and years, including in my family. It's, um, I think, this particular sort of humour that comes from people with not much to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of devastatingly honest humour when people can just say say what they see in front of them and they don't have to mince words or they cut through the bullshit and sometimes it's absolutely hilarious. And I've seen, you know, I've seen that come out of... Um, white fellas in the jail system as well as black fellas, so uh, maybe it cuts across a bit. Yeah, and you'll, you'll find that people from those particular communities um, aren't backwards and coming forwards in terms of giving um, one a character assessment. <laughs> Frank and fearless character assessment. <laughs> <laughs> Like you, like you mentioned before, one of the constant themes throughout your writing has been have has to be um, give voice to um, you know the black slash brown underclass. Um, where does the passion to tell these stories come from? Oh, the same place it's always come from for me, I suppose, which is seeing um, a version of Australia 
in in literature and on TV and movies that um, either leaves us out entirely or sees us as something um, exotic or or you know demonises us or just gets it wrong. You know, it's my first night because it was like, oh hello, we exist. Over here, over here, there's, there's an Aboriginal part of Australia, you know, and it just felt um, completely misunderstood or ignored by the, the writing world, almost. So then you had books like Uncle Sam Watson and Kodaicha Sung and the works of Ujiru Nunakal and some other early writers. Yeah. Not so out there. You know, the mainstream was uh, so incredibly white, uh, in 20-odd years ago when I was writing. It's, it's still um, white now, but at least there's a little bit of progress being made. You know, there's a lot of young black writers coming through. Um, there's writers of colour, like, um, you know, the Benjamin Laws and yeah. Winnie Dunn's and, you know, all sorts of people. The new, new wave of African writers, Maxine Benabla-Clark and um, Ray Ismail and different people like that. Yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned um, sisters inside before. Um, we're being locked up in greater rates than seemingly ever before, and it does threaten to generate a class of Aboriginal people, a jail class, as as you refer to it. Um, this is one of the reasons you're a founding member of Sisters Inside. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that organisation? Yeah, well, I think ever since the convict culture arrived on the ships, um, you know that. We've been the scapegoat for white Australia. We've been the we've been the mob who's um, been the designated criminals for defending it. Firstly, for defending our land, and then for having the audacity to try and survive on it, uh, on the remnants and the scraps of the convict society. So, I think there is um, a prison underclass, and a, and a black underclass is a big part of that. Um, of course, there's other people like myself who um, own houses and cars and stuff like that, as well as a whole lot of working-class um, Murrays and Gurries and Nungas and Nungas um, that are just leading fairly, um, you know, ordinary working-class lives. Uh, as far as sisters and side goes, um, yeah, someone invited me to a meeting in Brisbane about, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago. Yeah, it was 25 years ago, actually. And because my oldest brother spent many decades in jail, um, I, you know, was particularly interested and I went along, uh, being a feminist as well, and uh, met Deb Kilroy and some of the other women. And we, from there, um, we decided that things had to change and we'd try and shake things up a bit in terms of getting some justice um, for the women, you know, whether they're white, black or Asian women, inside the uh, Queensland prison system of the time and we started on our mate's veranda in West End and uh, just 25 years later we've got Sisters Inside's got 30 odd staff and holds an international conference in Australia each year with Angela Davis, usually comes over from the States. Yep. And uh, last last year we um, we brought grandmothers from Alice Springs, there was uh, women from all over Australia come and one of the questions I always ask is um, can sisters inside come to our community and, and operate in our state or in our community? And what sisters tries to do is, is say, well, um, it has to come from the grassroots. Yeah. You know, we can't 
Bob in and set up where you are, but this is how it happened for us and this is, you know, we'll support you to do it. Yeah, my, my experience has been that um, if there's to be any sort of initiative or project that's going to work within a community, it has to be initiated and owned by that community. Yeah, it's just common sense, eh? And we've had people telling us what's good at first for 200 odd years, and it hasn't worked particularly well, has it? No, no, it hasn't. And that's part, of, I guess, of, um, you know, the. The Uluru statement from the heart is trying to get that voice in from the outset and not, not retrofitting it like we've been doing for the last 230 years. Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I, I'm kind of... I'm not sure what to think about the whole Uluru statement thing. I wasn't particularly involved in the debates leading up to it. I guess I'm, uh, I'm going to wait and see what develops because... Uh, I guess I have low expectations of the white political system and uh, I'm a big believer in us just going and doing what we need to do in our communities uh, without without relying on too much change coming from the external world. So, yeah, wait and see is my kind of attitude. Yeah, it's a, it's a fine balancing act between how much energy do we give to processes like that at the expense of what's happening at, at, at the grassroots. So there's always that, always that tension and there is a fair way or a fair way to go before, you know, that plays out in um, any sort of real sense, I guess. Yeah, I was very sceptical about the Uluru Statement until I saw that um, Uncle Kevin Carmody was uh, in the here a few weeks ago sounding like he supported it and I thought, well... That's someone I have the utmost respect for, and um, so I'll just I'll shut up and and see what develops. Yeah, it was the same with me with a couple of people that have come out and supported. I thought, okay, all right, if they're going to come out and support it, then I'll just sit back and um, have a look and see how it plays out. Yeah, uh, um, these processes take a long time too. You know, white fellas spent close to two hundred years trying to wipe us out. Yeah. Um, and in some parts of the country, they'd still be very happy to wipe us out, I think. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So it's not like anything's going to change in that relationship overnight, and that it doesn't have to change overnight. You know, we, there's so much we can be doing in, oursel- in ourselves and in our families and in our communities, and uh, there's a lot of rebuilding um, that needs to happen in, in private, in black spaces, I guess, but, you know. Yeah, it's about um, equipping ourselves, I guess, to have those tough conversations within our own community, and, and only we can do that. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, depending on how displaced people are, I mean, not on Bundalung, but my family was taken into Queensland three generations ago, so it's not like I'm trying to speak for anyone except myself and my immediate family, I guess, so I'm an observer and a writer. I'm, I'm not a politician or a representative, and I don't pretend to be. But you're paying attention, so that's good for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what impact do you think winning the Miles Franklin Award will have on you as a writer, if any? Um, oh, I'm getting a lot of requests for, you know, uh, publishers uh, approaching my agent and asking for this and asking for that, but I'm currently researching another book, a novel of colonial Queensland. All right. I'm having to say no to even more than usual. I'll tell you one thing that happened is um, the morning after the Miles Franklin was announced, my agent uh, emailed me and said, oh, 
Um, it's probably not going to happen too late, but Hollywood's knocking on the door. Ooh. I had to laugh about that because uh, an Australian company, a new Australian film company, optioned the book um, back in May, and I had the bloody smarts to, to get onto it first. So, yeah, Hollywood has to... Um, well, that's a pity. I, I would have thought that there was a, a role for, uh, you know, Brad Pitt and Nicole Kidman somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have to get in line with quite a lot of my, my Aboriginal friends. <laughs> 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 I get the whole Every rocket says that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, people come out of the woodwork when they, when they get a sniff of a film part, I'm sure. <laughs> um, look, I get a sense... Um, oh, by the way, I better just... Um, you're listening to Triple R. My name's Daniel James. This is The Mission. I'm speaking with Melissa Lukashenko about writing, I guess, more than anything else. Um, look, I get the sense that the current political climate, uh, despite the current political environment... Um, Australians are more open now than ever to hearing First Nations stories and, and true history. Would you agree with that? Uh, depending on which demographic you're talking about, um, yeah, maybe. And there's economic, legal reasons for that. You know, it's not that Australians have suddenly, you know, turned a corner and become 25% less racist or something. It's simply the, the Mabo decision uh, in '94 has meant uh, Australia had to reckon, at some level, had to reckon with the fact that we weren't going anywhere, that, you know, blackfellas own the country and are still here, and all of the native title processes, everything that's flowed from Marbo and Wick has meant uh, that white Australia could no longer ignore the fact that we exist. And because of the native title process, although it's, you know, it's been pretty ratchet for a long black communities, what it's done for white Australia is given it some level of certainty about um, the relationship and so what's come out of that is things like the reconciliation movement and a kind of an ease in white Australia, not for us, but an ease in white Australia in saying, okay, there's an Aboriginal presence here and we've sort of got a handle on it because there's been a native time decision uh, in our community, and therefore we can engage with Aboriginal people in a, uh, a different kind of way, and that's flowed through to the arts. I yeah, think. and again, it's 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 something that hasn't been given to us. It's something that's actually you know we've had to generate our own voice and, and push through you know, the various gatekeepers in, in publishing houses and in theatre companies and in film studios. And, you know, obviously you're, you know, one of the main charges in um, in that respect. So um, thanks very much for that. Oh, look, I haven't done much. It was the earlier generation than me that, you know, fought in the streets a lot harder than I've ever had to. And, you know, people shed blood so that we can get our voices heard. So it's, it's that yeah, but you... you... You've got to capitalise on it, and um, you know um, you're capitalising on it. And, and, and t- oh, I'm a socialist, brother. I'm not a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> touche, touche. So, besides, sorry, you're right. We've never been given thing, you know, for free. It's uh, it's all had to be paid for in blood, sweat, and tears. Um, so. That's exactly right. And, and it's not like you pay for it once and it's over. We have to keep writing all the time because it's a process. It's not a, 
it's not an outcome, it's a process of existing on uh, our rightful place as uh, um, the First Nations of the continent. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no destination with this um, at the moment. It's, it's a process that will probably continue to go on well past um, our lifetime. But it's, um, uh, it's a journey that's arduous. But it's a journey that we can also have a lot of fun with and during at the, at the same time. And I get the sense that uh, you're enjoying the journey at the moment. Yeah. Well, I can't complain. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty rude. So you're working on a new book, and you know you're speaking um, with uh, with uh, filmmakers in Hollywood and the like. What else is happening with, for you now? Before uh, I'll let you go. Um, I'm actually just driving from Lismore up through Yugambeh country on the Gold Coast to get to Brisbane at the moment because there's a uh, family member in palliative care. So I'm. Uh, oh, I'm sorry I'm, to hear that. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm on a, a sad kind of trip, but I'm travelling through such. Beautiful saltwater country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Well, um, drive carefully. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. I saw you up in Byron, and just everyone wanted a slice of you. So I know how busy you are and how many requests you're getting at the moment. So thank you so much for your time. Welcome, brother. The um, 2019 Miles Franklin Award-winning novel Too Much Lip is available in all good bookstores, especially independent ones. Um, it's and libraries. Don't forget the libraries. And libraries, so you don't have to pay for it. You can go in. Libraries uh, are making a resurgence, I'm, I'm glad to see, in this city in particular. So um, go down to your local library, borrow it out, make sure you return it on time. <laughs> and um, it should have the, um, the Miles Franklin badge on the front now. Um, uh, you actually had to sit on the information um, that, you, that you won for a couple of weeks, didn't you? Yeah, had to sit on it for a couple of weeks. That was pretty hard. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I know if I'd won something of that calibre, I'd struggle big time. <laughs> Apparently, I had a big grin on the face, so everyone knew anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Reading between the lines. <laughs> Melissa Lukashenko, thank you so much for your time. All there, Jim Thanks, mate. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. means a lot. This is the mission. I have three of the Deans of Soul in studio with me. The track you just heard was, uh, well, I think it's over from their forthcoming uh, CD, Equal. It'll be out in October. But um, which one of you fellas want to be the, the nominated spokesperson? Um, we nominate Link. Yeah, okay. Good on you. Yeah, yeah. yeah on you. Link, <laughs> what, was, what was that track about? Uh, look, it's... Um in your own time. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a ballad, Dan, so we don't normally write ballads. Yeah, a bit different for you guys. A bit different. Um, Bernie walking along the beach, you know. Crying. Thinking about woman troubles. <laughs> no, it's probably, it's probably more about, um, yeah, just relationships. I think I write songs about relationships, good ones, things that happen in them, and sometimes things don't go too well so so that was a link there on uh, vocals and guitar he's an uh, excellent axeman how long are you fellas in your various iterations i mean you've been the dean's of soul for a long time now but how long have you guys been playing together well i um started off drumming in the early 2000s and i walked into the health service down there vars one day and i seen a sign on the the desk hidden behind some flowers and said music program part-timers in broad in i thought 
oh, I might have to do that. I've always wanted to be a rock star. Then <laughs> went out there and Link took advantage of me. Oh. <clears throat> he said, you want to join my band? I'm like, what kind of band you got? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> it went from there. You're listening, you're listening to Bradley Boone, the, uh, the drummer for the Deans of Soul. The most uh, important person. The, the engine room. <coughs> and the, uh, the, 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 the second uh, most important person, of course, is the bass player, and that is uh, Nick, who was, said he was going to make a vow of silence and not speak yeah, this yeah, evening. No, but, that uh, never happens. <laughs> Quite, Nick, is a very rare thing. <laughs> now, you recorded this up in um, a place near Seymour called uh, common Ground, and you've recorded about two or three albums there now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the third, or well, this is the second album uh, we've recorded there, and we and did an EP, EP before that, um, yeah. which we, was uh, released in 2017. Right. And we called that um, EP, um, we called it Unity, and then I think the discussion out of what was going on there was we were going to add uh, more songs to a collection and um, Equal came up. I think the guys were talking about al- album names for the next one. And I think uh, the last three years, 16, 17, 18, we've been recording at this place, Common Ground. Yep. A fantastic um, location. Big shout-out to Phil and Kate and uh, the team up there. So it's a very it's a very organic process, isn't it? I mean, it's, you're just basically standing in what is a really nice room and, and recording it. Yeah? There's a huge, huge... It's like a mud brick, um, rendered mud brick, huge round room with an open fire, big windows, big doors. Um, we just set up like we're in a rehearsal room. We can all see each other and play, and we just play. We hit record and we just play. Um, so it doesn't feel like you're in a recording studio. No-one's wearing headphones. Um, no one's really engineering. We just run it and concentrate on getting the songs right. Yeah, I think that comes across in the recordings I've heard over the years. It's kind of like a really sort of nice, relaxed vibe you've got going there. Yeah, we're just um, a lot of coffee, a lot of Tim Tams. Gum trees and oh. big big roos. Oh. Uh, yeah, big roos jumping. Past. Rock and roll then. Yeah. Oh, no, living yeah. the dream. <laughs> 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 and the thing about it is you can, you can make a bit of noise without worrying the neighbours too much and go into the early hours of the morning, which is what we've normally done, is record right into the two or three in the morning and um, maybe just play back what we've done in the daytime. Yeah, That's right. what we normally would do before going to bed at three in the morning or something. Yeah. What, like time, what time's breakfast? Nine o'clock. When Bernie can get up and make the... No, scrambled eggs. Yeah, that's you doing the I did that. Eggs. Yeah. I do the fire. Yeah, sure. He does the Larkins does the coffees. Right. Yeah. So it's a well machine then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So who else? Who else is in the band? So we've got you three blokes in tonight, but there is a, uh, an extensive list of musicians that uh, that play with you live gigs. Want to run through some of those names? Yeah, it's you don't have to. Of, there's a lot of musicians <laughs> out of Melbourne that we've we've gone through about four or five trumpet players. So the current. The two, there are three trumpet players on this recording. Yep. Um, Bell Port is one of them, uh, Basil Burns another, and Charlie Woods. And so they played... Uh, I think Charlie played um, one track and the other two girls have played the remainder. Right. Um, we've got Amelia Wilmot on sax, and we just affectionately call Amelia Max. So Max <laughs> of sax. We've got Sophie Dixon... Uh, as one of the vocals and Sophie Agostinello or also known as Sophie Ellsworth as another vocal. So two Sophies singing yeah. and Phoebe Ellsworth on keyboards um, and I think that's it, that's the lineup. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that'll be the lineup that's playing at Bar Open this Saturday? Yeah, 
no, not not in. I think Trump, one, we're Trump one, one out. Yeah, yeah. Trump players off. Basil's in, overseas. No, nah, nah, she's back. She's up in Castle Maine. <laughs> she's back. Up in the snow, snowfields of Castle Maine. Yeah, she's, she, she can't play because she's got frostbite. She's got frostbite. Yeah, she's, uh, <laughs> living the dream up there in Castle Maine. Fingers are falling off so, um, on the trumpet. So. I actually love Castle Maine, so anyone that's listening from Castle Maine, I'm not having a dig at you. So. No, I'm pretty sure. I'm, pretty, I'm not sure whether we can get. I mean, we stream everywhere, so, you know, if you've got anyone invited to Stock that you want to say hello to, by all means. But I think they, they can get us a, um, <laughs> uh, get our reception up there, maybe. I know I know they can get in Kilmore, so, if you, you know, big shout-out to all the folk in Kilmore. Hello, Kilmore. Now, if um, we want to find out more information about uh, where to find you blokes, you're available on all the socials, so you're the Deans of Soul on Instagram. Of, yep, Instagram, uh, the Deans of Soul on Facebook, the Deans of Soul on YouTube, www is that three w's dot the deans of soul dot com the deans of soul on spotify the deans of soul on itunes amazon music apple music what everywhere i should i should point out this you're listening to the mission bradley and link are actually um a couple of uh, Aboriginal men. Yes. Who's, who's your mob, Bradley? Um, uh, well, it's funny. I'm a Gippsland. I identify as Kurnai, known as Gunai Kurnai. Yep. But also got links to Jabwarong, Gundachamara, Wajabolik, Jarjarung, and the other part of his Dutch. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> With Dutch. Can't forget. So it's all of Victoria and Holland. All of Victorian <laughs> parts of Holland, yes. <laughs> what about you, Link? <laughs> Oh, I'd say half of Queensland. <laughs> uh, Murray man, Viali Gurung Gurung man. Uh, was raised and born in uh, Turrbal, Yagara, Brisbane. Yep. But uh, yeah, Bundaberg and uh, Gladstone, Rockhampton, Durumbul families as well. Um, and I came down to Melbourne in about 99, and that's when I caught up with this lad just a bit after maybe 2001, I think it was. Yeah. And Bernie's only told some of that story, Dan. Yeah, yeah. The other part of it is when he did walk in, he uh, he had his own car and he had his own drum kit. Right. So I said, you've got the, you've got the job Lo- because you've got side. your own car, you've got your own kit. I didn't care if he could play. Yeah. And that was, a, you know, that we had to work on that. But he had his own kit and he had his own car. So. Man of yeah. the world, man of the world. And Nick, what's, what's your, your heritage? Why are you ticking all the boxes here? Yeah, Irish convict Gubba from Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> From Tassie, Perfect. token, Perfect. Yeah, token, token convict. <laughs> if you want more information, uh, you can visit uh, deansofsoul dot com. Um, there'll be information there. Follow on Facebook. Follow on Instagram. Uh, but I think they're on Twitter, so don't bother. Yeah, trying actually, to... we are on Twitter, but I don't oh. know how to use it. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, if he doesn't know, join the adventure then and uh, see if you can help him use Twitter. <laughs> Thanks for your time, gentlemen. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Radiothon is coming up. Um, So it'll be my first Radiothon, so I thought I'd better get someone in to um, assist me next week and co-host... Uh, what will be zero 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 one six um, of the mission, and uh, the person that has graciously accepted uh, my invitation is uh, none other than Rachel Hocking. So that should be um, good. I just really want to um, I bring her in so I can say I associated with her when she was 
um, you know, just a just a mild superstar, not the um, the absolute massive superstar that she is going to become. So I'm looking forward to that immensely. I'm looking forward to uh, Radiothon. I'm looking forward to the good vibes that are associated with Radiothon. Um, but that's basically it for uh, this week's uh, episode of the Mission. Until next Tuesday, good evening. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>